This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Taking stock, as it were, of the world of big banks. Mm -hmm. They are very much in the headlines. Down in Washington yesterday, seven heads of big banks testifying before the House Financial Services Committee, getting ready for earnings tomorrow, some reshuffling today. What to make of all of it? Well, that's why we have Michael Moore. He is finance team leader for Bloomberg, based here in New York City. He's always busy, but he's going to get even busier in the coming days as earnings comes out. But let's start with today, Mike, because Deutsche Bank, always in the headlines, but right. but really in the headlines, it feels like today, because this deal, we don't know where it's going to go from here. Yeah, it seems like there's more people against it than for it right now. You know, you have some of the regulators questioning the logic. You have the labor groups very uh, vociferously opposed. Uh, politicians, it kind of depends on which politician you're looking at. Um, but, you know, ultimately, uh, this would create a German national champion. And some people say, why do we need that? How would that actually help? Well, and will it really be a German national champion, right? right? It's not like, you know, Jason and I keep kind of joking, but it's weak bank plus weak bank does not yep. equal strong bank. Right. Uh, and that's kind of where, where we are. Right. The, the question is, does this give them some cover mm -hmm. to do the things that would make it a strong bank, a.k.a. raise capital and cut a lot of jobs? And that's why it's uh, potentially considered. And it's also why it's very unpopular in certain areas. And meanwhile, over at City, felt like some surprising moves in terms of, of this yep. reshuffle that's going on. Help us understand what's going on there. Yeah, so the president, uh, Jamie Faris, who was seen as the number two, the um, the near-term successor if, if Corbett were to leave, uh, he's stepping down. Uh, we've seen that... Uh, at a couple banks recently, Colm Kelleher at, at yeah. Morgan Stanley, uh, same position, um, stepping down as well. I, I think you're seeing kind of a generational turnover. Both of those guys kind of led trading businesses right after the financial crisis uh, and, you know, perhaps waited it out as long as they could, you know, yeah. to see if they could get that CEO spot. Uh, and it doesn't look like that's going to happen uh, for Faris. Uh, Corbett, there was some talk, you know, um, their chairman was stepping down this year. There was some talk that Corbett might be made the chairman and uh, that might let Faris step into kind of a bigger role overseeing more of the bank. Uh, that didn't happen. They brought in an outside chairman. So uh, I think that's uh, kind of what drove uh, this. But they were somewhat set up for it because uh, – they had uh, promoted a deputy under Faris, and he's stepping into that role. Well, and it was interesting, and, and Carol, you and I were talking about this a little bit as mm -hmm. we looked at that roster of uh, guys uh, testifying yesterday on Capitol Hill. You know, all of them have been in their jobs for some time, especially mm -hmm. Jamie Dimon, as right. you well know, was, was really the only holdover from the pre-crisis uh, days. But 
a bunch of, you know, middle-aged white dudes. Right. Uh, the question even was posed to them, you know, uh, you know, do you imagine your successor may not look like you uh, in so many ways? And so these questions do seem to be coming up more and more. And this movement makes you think, that you know, maybe it will be different. Maybe, I don't maybe know. I don't know. I don't know. Right here we are, and we are talking about the same thing. What I'm wondering about for Citigroup, what does it mean for Faris to leave? Right, this is a guy so entrenched in the company, the culture, right. the clients, and the mm-hmm. client base, and his what he oversaw was really important to the top and bottom line. So yes, I'm curious, it, what does it mean? Even though they were planning for it, it's not that guy anymore. Right. And it's not just him. Uh, you know, we mentioned right. our story today. Over the last 14 months, they had 14 executive officers last February. Eight of those are now gone or are planning to leave. Um, so you're having this a very uh, dramatic turnover at the top of Citigroup. Uh, Corbett talked today about... You know, he sees this as healthy, uh, letting the next generation step up. They have the new CFO, Mark Mason. You know, they've, they're allowing some people to step into new roles. City had a core group that had been in place for a long time. And if Corbett's not going anywhere, maybe this is the way to kind of refresh the top of it. But it does lead to quite a bit of change. Is he right in terms of... You know, we're refreshing. This is a good thing. Is she worried about that? You know, it's it's always hard to tell from the from yeah. yeah. Uh, You know, you can talk to people who have different views on that on uh, whether this is you know a refresh that was needed or whether it's going to cause some turbulence. I mean, Citigroup uh, they missed uh, the target they had for uh, costs, uh, the cost income ratio last year. Uh, Investors were not pleased with that, but. Uh, overall, they've been uh, slowly but surely uh, improving their profitability picture, uh, but they have been slower than some of the rivals to get to, some, to get to those profitability levels. Do we need a CEO refresh? I mean, Corey's been there since, what, 2012? So 2012. he's coming up on seven years here in the fall. Right. You know, I... I, it doesn't look like that's in the cards okay. at the moment. And, so you know, Faris was the guy yeah. over the last few years that people thought might step in if that were to be needed. Uh, there are some people that have been in at City that have been thrown out for the potentially the Wells Fargo job. You know, right. some of their well, consumer folks. Well, that's what folks. I was going to yeah. mention to you is that, in you know, obviously there'll be a lot of questions tomorrow for Wells Fargo when they report earnings. But one of them is they're going to need a new CEO. You have right. to think that's going to come up a lot on the call, maybe less so for J.P. Morgan because Jamie is going to live forever and be there forever, apparently. (laughs) Well, and Wells is so unique because none of these banks in recent history have gone outside the firm for their CEO. And this is the first time that's happening in a long time. Although that's exactly what most would say Wells needs at this point. Yes, and that they came to that conclusion themselves. We need somebody from the outside, whereas J.P. Morgan, it's likely going to be internal. Get your sleep. You're going to be busy. (laughs) All right. Michael Moore, love catching up with you. Finance team leader for Bloomberg here in New York. Joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. As you heard Jason and I talk a little bit earlier, this is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. 
It's uh, about the company. It's one of those largest market cap companies. We're talking about Amazon. But it's also about uh, how Amazon workers are apparently listening in and checking out what you say to Alexa. Spencer Soper is technology and e-commerce reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in the Seattle Bureau here for Bloomberg News. And there's really a couple stories. We've also are hearing from the CEO of Amazon annual letter to uh, shareholders. Hey, Spencer, good to have you here. So tell us what the heck is going on in terms of uh, workers, Amazon workers listening in on Alexa? Okay. So, yeah, we have to think about um, Amazon's, you know, Echo devices that it introduced a few years ago, and they really became a a, a breakaway hit unexpectedly. I think that a lot of people were making fun of them initially. It was like you could use a voice command to turn on the lights or, you know, maybe listen to to some songs on the radio, uh, but they became extremely popular, and and you know tens of millions of these devices have been have been sold, and people have them in their homes. And what this story revealed is the extent uh, to which Amazon is listening, because for this voice-activated platform to get better, uh, if if you have one of these devices yourself, you've probably noticed a time where it, you've tripped it up. Maybe you asked it something, and it said it couldn't answer, or it just didn't didn't work. So. Amazon has thousands of people around the world working in, in shops that are transcribing these instances where uh, people ask Alexa things and it doesn't have an answer for them to make the platform better. So they've got offices in Romania, Boston, India, uh, where you essentially have teams of people listening in. Um, and so this is just the extent of kind of the, the eavesdropping going on um, in, in, in people's homes through this, through this platform, all with the intent of, of making this platform better. But it's still just kind of alarming to think of the, the degree to which it happens. And so just for people listening who are thinking like I am, oh boy, I, I might not want it to do that in my house. Is there a, a way to essentially disable this? Yeah, there is some uh, opt-out uh, uh, function on that. It's something I, I have to look at myself more, more closely and figure out how to do, because I think people are pretty much default opted in, yeah. which is somehow how companies get in, get in trouble with this kind of stuff. But there is, uh, there is supposed to be some sort of way to, to opt out of this. So what's interesting is, though, right, we want this stuff to work. You know, I have to be honest, we have a Google Home and like when it doesn't work, we're like, oh, just shut up. You're so stupid kind of thing. You know? and, and, you know, you, you want it to work better. And the only way these things get better is if you continuously feed more information, right? So they better understand, you know, different speeches and different speaking patterns and all that kind of things, uh, all, all those kinds of things. So, I, I mean, this is the way you make it better, right? So I almost feel like part of us should understand, right? Of course, this is happening. Yeah, so it's it it should be uh, expected if you plug something into your house that has a microphone on it that's transcri- that's uh, transmitting your your conversations, you know, o- over the interwebs. That yes, <laughs> you know, you're relinquishing some privacy. Right. Um, but I think what what was a, a alarming here too is that uh, sometimes people are simply just hearing things inadvertently, uh, which happens quite frequently. Um, when people don't say the Alexa wake word, but suddenly um, the the people working in these offices are hearing, you know, sounds of a woman singing off key in the shower or children screaming and crying, um, just some things that people probably wouldn't want strangers hearing, and and, and that does happen uh, quite often. Right. Uh, just about forty seconds left, Spencer. Tell us what Mr. Bezos had to say in his annual letter. 
Well, it seemed to be a pushback on the notion of antitrust. Uh, his big big reveal was that uh, despite a lot of news reports that Amazon is pushing its own private label products and is becoming this retail Goliath, that, that really the third-party merchants, these would be the individual merchants who put their products on, on Amazon's uh, web store and pay Amazon a commission, are doing very well make up uh, 58% of all the merchandise sold on the platform, and that basically they're kind of taking over and beating out the, uh, uh, the Amazon's own retail sales. So it, the, the main message was just that he's trying to push back on the notion that um, a- Amazon is a monopoly. All right, got it. Hey, Spencer, thank you so much. Spencer Soper is technology and e-commerce reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from our Seattle bureau here at Bloomberg News. Check him out on Twitter at Spencer Soper. And just a quick check on shares of Amazon. They are really trading little change. In fact, the stock just down about 0.3%. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. So infrastructure spending, often thought of as the one area that both Democrats and Republicans agreed upon. And as a result, investors have been opening up funds to invest in just that. We're seeing some momentum for infrastructure investments once again. Here are some thoughts. Henry Cisneros, he is former secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. We're talking about HUD, chairman and co-CEO or co-chief investment officer, I should say, at American Triple I Partners. And he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Um Mr. Secretary, so nice to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be with you. We do talk about infrastructure, and we did think it was the thing that everybody agreed upon. You move around our country, and you you can easily see the investments that are needed. How do you see it right now? Well, it is true. We have a massive deficit uh, in the infrastructure funding, and and the needs are piling up. Uh, The American Society of Civil Engineers says a gap of about $2 trillion in infrastructure just to get it up to acceptable levels. They give it a grade of D. Uh, And we see the practical meaning of that in water problems in places like Flint, Mm -hmm. congestion right here in the metropolitan area in New York on the roadways, for example, Uh, docks that are inadequate to handle the big ships coming through the Panama Canal now from Asia, Uh, airports, People fly from gleaming terminals in uh, Asia, in Europe, and land at American airports and wonder which is the third world country. Right. right. And uh, so we have massive issues. Uh, our our uh, power grid uh, blackouts that cost billions of dollars a year uh, and uh, match that to the continuing fossil fuel emissions problems when we could be doing solar and wind and other things. Uh, so all across the board, broadband that's slower than it needs to be in the right. United States is this m- number of, of, of $2 trillion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're simply stated there isn't enough public resources to deal with this. Um, not that we're doing all that we should with what we have, but it isn't enough. There's so not, not a way to get money. to government money. Either federal government or state or local can't get to the $2 trillion. So it's widely understood there is an imperative to bring private capital Mm -hmm. to the mix. The president, for example, President Trump, has put forward a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan, but only $200 billion of that, 20%, is public resources. The other $800 billion that he proposes would be matched by state and local governments or the private sector. But the, the mechanism for serious investment of that kind of money on the part of the private sector hasn't been 
here in the United States. Well, it exists in Australia, Spain, Well, it, that's Britain. exactly what I was going to say is because, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking to some big infrastructure investors, mm-hmm. whether it's Global Infrastructure Partners, Correct. Macquarie, Blackstone. Blackstone, KKR has gotten into it, Carlisle has gotten into Correct. it, Riverstone. Everybody. We yeah. could go through a whole list of names. Right. They've been incredibly successful overseas. Yes, but it is What's starting to happen in the United States. Yeah. First of all, it will require some priming of the pump on the part of the federal government to, to, to start some projects that otherwise would be dead. So that's the importance of the Trump plan or uh, the Democrats. Right. Nancy Pelosi has called for a trillion dollars worth of investment or more. She's saying we need actually need up to $2 trillion. Amy Koblichar, running for president, has put forward a plan of a, uh, of a trillion dollar investment. And others will as, as well because it solves so many problems. Not only the, the gap in, in projects, but things like equity considerations mm-hmm. of employment and wages, uh, technological catch-up. We've got a lot of catching up to do with technology. That's where I want to go because yeah. I think about the story that we recently had in um, the magazine that just talked about you know, China at this point, especially when you think about things like self-driving cars, Correct. they have invested so much in their infrastructures, <laughs> highways, and they're able to put the sensors in yep. and so that in many ways they will develop the standards going We're forward if we We're at a point of inflection. Up where the next generation of infrastructure is not going to be just more of the same, wider roadways, more fossil fuel generating stations. It's going to be different. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what makes it costly in that we can't just add on to or repair what exists, but it's going to be fundamentally different. It's going to be uh, wind and solar power with interactive capabilities so you can have smaller distributive power and then sell it back into the grid, for example. It's going to be... Right. Uh, sensors embedded in roadways so you can manage congestion in the roadways, for example. It's going to be things uh, in broadband where we speed up the amount of communications available and and, 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 and air, airplanes that can land because the air control system is tighter so you can land more and therefore... Uh, uh, you know, space them properly. I, that's the world I want to live in. Yes. How do we get there, though? Because I feel like this has been a conversation for at least 10 years well, about the needs. Part of, part, of, part, part of it is we are going to need more private investment in infrastructure in the United States. And in part, that calls for a regime in the uh, a, a policy regime right. that helps private investors do this, lessening some time lessening some of the uncertainty associated with present investment in infrastructure where a political entity can change its mind as somebody's invested halfway into a project, for example. We want to be careful to be attentive to things like the environment, but in a balance with the jobs and economic development aspects and not let something like CEQA in California completely stop infrastructure developments. And then we need something that sort of organizes the 50 states so that an infrastructure I, I hear all the time from infrastructure companies that they have to reinvent the wheel in every different state in every different locality and we need a template that says no you can do this on a larger scale this is the rules this is the playing field and set a regime that 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 that, that works so if we're serious about this it's more than just the money it's create it's understanding what it's going to take to bring well, private capital to this now the fundamental reality is investors want to be paid back. Right. It's not an investment unless you're paid back. <laughs> right. So not all infrastructure qualifies for something that can be monetized and played back, paid back. Water systems do. Power systems do. Mm-hmm. Toll roads do. Airports have landing fees and concessions. Uh, seaports have uh, fees that they charge the ships coming in. There's 
all kinds of things that can be monetized. Uh, some, perhaps, like busy roadway, uh, unless you want to go to tolls, right. cannot. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you, and we only have a, about a minute left, but, but this idea that this has been successful. How do you get that message yeah. to the right people in Washington to break this gridlock? This well, is probably a the gridlock we confront is a lot bigger than infrastructure, yeah. right? I mean, now that the Mueller report is in, maybe – we, we can sense a need to move on from yeah. the kind of investigatory mode that has dominated the last couple of years. I say that as a Democrat because the country needs to move forward. Yeah. And then uh, we're in a, in a period where health care is now being debated and we're coming up on the cusp of an election. Mm. We can't pass another two years and not do what the country needs in order to remain competitive and keep it moving. So infrastructure is was, is, is, is just crying for yeah. bipartisanship. 20 seconds. you got to be fast because yeah, right. the computer will take us out. Do you see that we're moving in the direction that we're finally going to get some infrastructure I am optimistic going? we're going in the right direction on all the critical things. A recognition of the need, a recognition of the vehicles that exist, the systems, and an imperative on the part of business to want to invest. So great to get some time with you. Thank you. I hope. I hope. Fingers crossed. Exactly. Henry Cisneros, of course, former secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, chairman and co-chief investment officer at American Triple I Partners, right here in our interactive broker studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Favorite stories in this edition. I know. Talking heads. I know. It's a lot of fun. It's good. Good music. Uh, Road to Nowhere. We're talking about cars, talking about electric cars. What's the road going to be ahead? So let's get into this story because. It's not exactly going the way everybody no. thought, right. and it's bringing to the to the fore a lot of interesting questions for the world's biggest car makers. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is here with us. He commissioned this whole package about Germany because we're talking about BMW. Aaron Rutkoff, senior editor for Hyperdrive and Digital Enterprise. And let me just start by saying Hyperdrive is one of the coolest things we've got going on at Bloomberg. It's this combination this culmination multimedia multi uh team multidisciplinary i guess yeah, they would yeah, say yeah, yeah. Uh, effort to really understand where automotives are going and can i just say i'm on the website right now bloomberg.com slash hyperdrive it is sick this story in terms of the animation so aaron tell us a little bit about you know we think of story uh, sick it is well the animations are sick because it really helps illustrate what's going on uh the transition that we're seeing from one type of engine to another and the impact it could have on germany yeah, so this story started out with a reporter who covers the German auto industry, Elizabeth Behrman. Uh, she wanted to find out what was going to happen to the workers involved in making the current version of cars that we're all driving when uh, things in the next decade switch to electric vehicles. And so it started with this very classic approach to finding people whose jobs were in flux. And she did a really nice job of nailing that down. But it opened up this idea to us of trying to make people understand how things were going to change by looking physically underneath the hood of the cars, or in the case of electric cars, in the trunk, to see uh, how the technology determines the workforce that is required. So in looking at the BMW, you can just see that the engines inside of these things are huge and enormous. And compared to the electric motors that will be replacing our internal combustion engines, it's just a, it's a much smaller thing that's going to require fewer workers. 412 pounds, 1,200 parts. Very different, right, Joel, from what you would see in an electric vehicle. Right. And that, I think that was the, one of the reasons that we wanted – you called it commission earlier. That seems really official. But I just <laughs> asked him to kind of like do some Said, sleuthing. And, hey, guys. But can we, we do a story you, about that? Yeah, we exactly. We've seen the we, throne you sit on. We know how it works, Joel. 
all around here. Don't call we it know. a throne. They take it from you when you do that. When you zoom out um, and think about the re- implications of this, right? We have all these, you know, craftsmen basically crafting, you know, the perfect driving machine in the case right. of BMW. And suddenly when you start thinking about how much less uh, goes into an electric vehicle, it actually has some significant economic implications. Germany has has been known for generations for its manufacturing prowess, its engineering prowess. And yet, how is that workforce going to deal with a gigantic shift like this, where it just doesn't require the same amount of labor to build these next generation cars? And so, Aaron, what does it tell us about where we are? Because, as I alluded to at the top, you guys are looking at this very holistically, this whole move to to EV. What does this BMW story tell us about what's happening more broadly? Well, you know, I think one of the things it tries to do is take something that we all know is coming. I mean, everyone who follows the news has spent the last year thinking about Tesla and what's been going on with that company. But very few of us at, up to this point have electric vehicles in our garages. So I, I thought one of the most important things to do was to sort of uh, uh, make that visible to people, a technology that they're not quite familiar with yet. Uh, it's it's not just a one-to-one replacement, right? The, the things that are needed to bring our societies to electric vehicles are not quite the same as the gas stations and uh, infrastructure that we've built up around our current cars. So, you know, right now we've only seen maybe like 1% of the world's vehicles turn into electric cars, but uh, in the next decade that's going to increase dramatically. And so this is a way to try to unpack what that's going to bring. But it's, what's fascinating too, and Joel, you know, all right, throne or no throne, you, you know, you guys do this wonderful deep dive in the magazine that you look at Germany and you, you look at what's going on politically, you look at what's going on in the economy, and you do look at the auto industry, you also look at the banking industry. But in this particular um, section, you know, you're looking at the auto industry. I mean, this is so big and important to their economy. I mean, they're facing a lot of, you know, almost big existential questions right now for the country. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons we made Germany's Fragile Future the international cover uh, this week. And I thought it was a perfect time to do that because, you know, we've been talking about Brexit a lot. That kind of took up a lot of air in the room for a while. We've now punted that to October. And it's like, oh, by the way, what's Europe's biggest economy? Right. Oh, yeah, Germany. And let's, it's, a, it's, it's three elements to that go into this. There's this manufacturing economic story, which, you know, we're basically putting a spotlight on BMW as sort of a case study of that. There's the political thing. Merkel's not mm-hmm. going to be in power forever. She's going to hand the baton to uh, AKK. And so there's a political shift that's happening. And then there's this financial one of right. what, what becomes of Deutsche Bank. Yeah, and we're talking about that, I feel like, nearly every day. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, and Aaron Radkoff, senior editor for Hyperdrive and Digital I told Enterprise. You, the story is sick on the website. The sale of cars and related goods account for about one fifth of Germany's $1.3 trillion in exports. It makes me a little uncomfortable when you describe something as sick. It's See, a, the girl it, from New Jersey can do it's this. It's a little off brand, <laughs> I think. Anyway, uh, thank you both so much. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. It's a here. must read. On a sick Thursday afternoon, (laughs) it's all happening. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us.
the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Just about 11 minutes ago until the end of today's trading session. Time for the drive to the close. Back with us, Doug Phillips. He's a CIO at University of Rochester on the phone from Rochester, New York. And Bloomberg News Endowments reporter Janet Lauren. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. And I've already given Janet a little bit of a heads up, but we had a great conversation uh, earlier, Doug, with uh, Henry Cisneros, the former uh, Secretary of uh, Housing and uh, Urban Development uh, a few years ago. But he's now looking at and involved in infrastructure investing and, and feels like that kind of we're looking to start seeing some real momentum moving forward where investors are getting more involved, that there's more initiatives uh, across the country when it comes to infrastructure projects, and that will certainly provide opportunities for investors. Uh, but he mentioned that things like endowments, university endowments are interested. How, do you, how does that play into something you guys are doing? Well, I agree with infrastructure investing is something certainly in the U.S. that we we need. Uh, We've got a lot of aging roads and bridges and uh, things like that, and it's it's great that uh, we're talking about it. Generally, the way infrastructure investments work uh, haven't been attractive to endowments typically because they uh, have a lot of government uh, ties to them and there's less certainty in terms of total return. Uh, A lot of them have yield uh, orientation, so, so there's a kind of a tolling and, and uh, a steady cash flow uh, back. They, they fit very well on pension plans, uh, defined benefit plans, uh, but, but endowments haven't really embraced it. And we've looked at a lot of things around the world in infrastructure uh, for decades, and the models seem to, to follow that pattern of, you know, uh, long cycles, uh, kind of low yield. But certainly, I, I think for the U.S., uh, more investment in infrastructure, just as a citizen of this country, I, I think we need it. <laughs> right. We're all in on that, right? <laughs> okay. I'm glad Cisneros is supportive. Yeah. Well, and Doug, one of the interesting things, and I know that this is, this is something you've been looking at that uh, Secretary Cisneros brought up, was this idea of investing in infrastructure can't just be about like fixing the roads and fixing the airports and sort of fixing the stuff that we have, but it really requires us to think about what are we building, and especially in the guise of being more environmentally friendly, in, in more of the guise of thinking about renewables and, and all those sorts of things. I know that that's something that's top of mind for you. So how does that broader ESG uh, playbook fit into what you're doing now? Yeah, well, ESG, if you think of it in the largest largest context, which it, which it sounds like Assistant uh, Eros has been doing, uh, there's a lot of things we can do as a country and as institutions and as people to uh, to improve our you know, carbon output or, or decrease the carbon output. And one of the inter- interesting infrastructure facts that we don't often realize is the American uh, system of living, where we have a lot of people spread out in the suburbs and low-density uh, housing is not very efficient. Uh, the most efficient models for people living are in the cities, and we do have uh, some migration in this country to urban areas, uh, which is great. That should help reduce uh, fossil fuel consumption. People don't have to commute as far, typically, in those environments, too. So I'm I'm, I'm glad to, to hear about that. The divestment uh, of fossil fuels is something that uh, Janet uh, is aware uh, has been a, a big topic for college university endowments, uh, increasingly so in the past few years. And we've just seen it at one of the big Ivy League schools. I won't name which one, but uh, just this week has had quite a bit of tension on this. I thought uh, it might be worth 
saying, talking about some of the results that we've uh, studied, we did, did some analysis on this, and we found that about half of the schools, the bigger endowments, have some kind of policy or committee on this, and and, have, and then a smaller part of that group has taken some action. But the, if the, the studies all show the same thing, which is if you divest, you lose your voice with companies, with companies' management. And there's no, uh, there's no study anywhere that shows uh, evidence that divesting of fossil fuels or, or acting uh, with ESG as a primary component of your program, that that impacts uh, climate change, that it reduces uh, carbon emissions and that sort of thing. There's no evidence to that. And uh, it also doesn't change the behavior of companies engaged in fossil fuel uh, production. So what, what we're finding is the, the study we did shows that exactly the contrary is true, that if you're an engaged investor, uh, you can have an impact on the policies of the companies. And we saw this, uh, you remember South Africa and apartheid. So some institutions divested, uh, they lost their voice. The institutions that stayed uh, engaged with the uh, company management actually uh, improved, the companies improved the lives of the employees and the families of employees and schools and that sort of thing. And ultimately, that was one of the factors that led to the end of apartheid. Right, great so, lesson learned. Yeah. So do you have any plans to um, look at proxy votes or tell us a little bit about your strategy and what you plan yeah, to do? We're, we're probably going to join, uh, our, our committee here is recommending that we join something called Climate Action 100 Plus, which is a group of institutional investors that works with uh, investment advisors to uh, encourage their companies. And they do this through voting proxies or sponsoring resolutions or direct engagement, but encouraging them to act in an environmentally aware manner, uh, try to reduce their carbon footprint. They had a lot of success recently with Shell. You may have read that Shell uh, agreed to uh, tie the uh, performance pay of their chief executive officer to progress on, on uh, finding other methods of energy production that would reduce carbon. So uh, some of these big companies are really paying attention. And, and Shell said that, car that Climate Action 100 was one of the reasons they, uh, they, they changed their, their and, practice. And do you have direct holdings in some of these companies? Uh, I, we have direct holdings in many, many companies. Uh, we don't disclose the names of specific holdings. And so, Doug, do you feel like this is a moment where your peers are really sort of signing on to this in a way that we'll see an inflection point from institutional investors to, to change their perspective and, and maybe get some acceleration here? Only got that's about 30 question. seconds. Yeah, that's a good question. We, we, we did a study. Uh, we looked at where the top 32 endowments were in this country in, in terms of policy two years ago, and we updated that through 2019. And we did see some movement in this direction. It is not a groundswell, mm -hmm. but uh, there is an increasing number of universities and colleges that are um, either putting committees in place or have policies. But most of them are leaning towards more engagement with companies rather than divesting. All right, going to leave it on that note. Hey, Doug, thanks so much uh, for once again finding time for us. Doug Phillips, Chief Investment Officer at the University of Rochester, joining us on the phone from Rochester, New York, on this Thursday. And, of course, our thanks to Janet Lauren, as always, endowments reporter at Bloomberg News, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Do check out her reporting at Janet Lauren on Twitter. 
Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.